This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Audrey Cooper, the editor-in-chief of the San Francisco Chronicle. I'm Damian Bulwa, Metro editor. And this is Fifth Emission, a podcast where we dive into the biggest stories of the day. Today, critic Joshua Cosman brings us a story about a new trend in classical music, the welcoming of transgender singers. Find out what it means to be a singer when they transition and what it will mean for the future of the performing arts. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome, Joshua Cosman. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to talk to each other with microphones in front of us (laughs) instead of just cubicle walls. I love this story because I really enjoy stories that make you think differently about something you think you already know a lot about. And your story about transgender singers definitely falls into that category. But I'm wondering, like, how big of a deal is this really in classical music? It seems like maybe it wouldn't be that big of a deal. First of all, thanks for the kind words about the story. And it is, I would say, not yet a big deal in the classical world, but very likely to become one increasingly. One of the people that I talked to for this story, a voice singer named Ruth Renero, who said to me flat out, this has suddenly become a big thing on our radar in the last year or so. There's uh, workshops and articles and a lot of chatter about how to get trans singers into a technical place that is similar to or comparable to uh, other singers that have always been doing this. Now, your story focused on both professional singers who are transgender, Mm -hmm. and it also talked about some more amateur-level singers who are trans. But doesn't, you know, the the classical music community, like so many other um, performance arts, have to get new people to come in to their to their seats. They have to get new audiences. Is this a way embracing the trans community? Is this also a way, maybe a cynical way of <laughs> of getting more audience participation? Um, I think it may be, but I think it it's uh, more broadly a let's hope less cynical way of making sure that the world of classical singing, whether a professional or amateur isn't keeping people out who may not fit into certain categories. And that's something that we've seen really across society and across culture is of trying to figure out whether whether some of these old categories that we've adhered to rigidly for so long are really working for everyone. So, for example, one of the things that I focused on in this story is the an amateur chorus that is now uh, getting started at the San Francisco Community Music Center, which is a wonderful uh, establishment over in the in the Mission that is sort of you know open for all for for music education of various kinds, and they wanted to have a, a chorus that would be welcoming to people who didn't feel like they fit into the usual choral structures of soprano, alto, those are women, tenor, bass, 
those are men. It's a very rigid grid that, that choruses have been adhering to for centuries. And it leaves a lot of people out. Right. I loved when we were talking about this earlier. You said even from a very beginning stage, like middle school or high school or even younger, the boys go over there, the girls go over there. That's certainly how it was in my high school right. chorus. It's, it's true for many choruses. And if you come in there and you feel like those uh, categories don't necessarily apply to me, or even if they say boys over here in suits and girls over here in dresses, and that puts you off, already you're kind of like soured on Chorus, choral singing and singing and music, and we lose a lot of people that way. Well, it's interesting, too, that this is coming up now because I think of opera, for example, as both having very, very strong masculine and feminine roles, but also in some ways the theatricalness of it lends itself to some gender bending. You had some interesting examples of how that's playing out with trans performers. Right. Well, actually, there's a, I mean, there is a long history in opera of playing around with gender. Um, Going back all the way to the 17th century, when opera got started, you had cases where, you know, men were playing nurses and fishwives and sort of cross-gender for, for comic effect. And I don't think we see that so much anymore. Um, but there is the case of uh, me- female singers, rather, uh, playing male characters. Uh, but less often do we find uh, male characters playing female characters anymore. One of the uh, really interesting performers that I ran across... Uh, in the course of uh, doing this story is a, a woman named Lucia Lucas, who's a baritone. Now, a baritone is, you know, a deep male voice. And um, she was originally uh, actually a member of the Sacramento Opera Chorus as a bass uh, before she transitioned to female. She had gone over to Germany to, to start her opera career there, where she, you know, established herself very clearly when, as a man now before she transitioned. And, you know, continued her career uh, after uh, gender reassignment surgery. So she is now a woman singing roles that are traditionally done by men and really kind of manly roles like Don Giovanni, the um, seducer or rapist, depending on how you view that opera by Mozart, um, and, and Wotan, the king of the gods in Wagner's Ring Cycle, all these kind of real doodly authoritative roles. <laughs> Very doodly. And... Um, She's well, it's so interesting because, in a, in a sense, she's been playing a man her whole life, too. So now she's doing it as a woman on the stage. I just think that's so... Exactly, exactly. This is one of the most interesting things. When I talked to her on, uh, on the phone, actually, uh, for this story, I thought one of the most interesting things she said to me was playing men on stage came maybe more easily to her than it did to people who had been men all their lives because as a young person, she felt like a girl performing boyhood, you know, like learning all these masculine behaviors and gestures and all of these things sort of to pass as as a, a boy. Um, and so she just put that in the service of her theatrical and operatic performances. It's like the ultimate method acting. It, exactly. Yes. 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 One of the more interesting people I think that you interviewed for this piece is a person who um, was a mezzo-soprano, professional singer. And then he transitioned to Elliot. Can you tell us about Elliot? Right. Elliot Franks, who uh, many uh, Bay Area uh, music lovers remember as Elspeth Franks, uh, as a member of the uh, Philharmonia Baroque Orchestra Chorus and uh, from various stage performances, spent a lot of time, spent 20, 30 years as a professional mezzo-soprano singing female roles, although, as he says now, often sort of 
young boys and old bags. That's what he says. You know, the the, the roles that he felt uh, most at home with, but also feeling very um, not at home in in as far as gender goes. And about five years ago, at the age of fifty, decided that it was really time to make this transition for his own uh, self fulfillment and for his own happiness, regardless of what it might do to his career. And in fact, the career has taken a hit. Um, he had, a, as a mezzo-soprano, he had a three and a half octave range, as he says, and it was a beautiful, I mean, I remember hearing Elliot sing, you know, as a mezzo-soprano, a wonderful voice, very um, flexible and, and large. And since the surgery, which of course has various physical at, uh, effects on the vocal cords and on the vocal apparatus, um, he's found that his, his range has much restricted and the old, all the old vocal techniques that he spent a whole life and career learning don't quite work the way they used to anymore. So can you explain to everybody a little bit of the science behind that? Because it's, it's also hormonal changes that affect the vocal cords. That's right, exactly. So the pitch and timbre of a person's uh, voice depends on a lot of things, but primarily on the size and weight of the vocal cords themselves. And when you take... Um, hormones for female to male gender reassignment, one of the effects that it has is to make those cords heavier and thicker so that your voice drops. And what that also means is that it requires more lung power to push the air through those heavier, deeper cords. And all the techniques that you've learned for 20 years of how to control your voice, thing this is very important for singers, how to get the air right through the vocal cords, all of those complications have been rewritten, or those formulas, really. Conversely, interestingly enough, if you go from, transition from male to female, the hormonal effect on your vocal cords is basically nil. (laughs) So that's why a singer like Lucia Lucas, who went from male to female, found that her voice is still that great, big, deep, baritone voice that she had before surgery. I'm curious, you interviewed a lot of singers for this piece. Was it hard to get people to talk? You know, it wasn't. People are, are, who are living this situation and, and out on the front lines of these kinds of paradigm changes are really eager and happy to talk about this. And there's not all that many yet, but we feel like there are more coming down the pike. And so anything that they can do or we can do to kind of make it clear that this is not an isolated phenomenon, that there are many people who are, you know, living in with some kind of gender nonconformity who still want to have a musical life. And what was the reaction you got after we published this piece? <laughs> um, it was it was positive overall, I would say. Um, the, the one piece of pushback we got a little bit was in the beginning of the story, I talked about Elliot Franks and I talked about his past as a woman named Elspeth Franks, and in, in many circles, what, that is regarded as something one's not supposed to do, use former name, former gender. Um, and I am completely down with that. I, in this case, had spoken to Elliot and made sure that everything we said in that story was completely like in conformity with his sense of identity, and um, he kind of gave us more or less carte blanche on that. Is there anything that you think listeners should go away with um, from this piece? What were you hoping to accomplish? Well, one of the things was to make sure that people understood that 
Um, there are many more kinds of uh, vocal techniques and vocal categories and vocal apparatuses and vocal opportunities than we usually think of in these kinds of rigid binary, gender binary um, uh, patterns that we're used to so that people who may feel like, oh, I have a voice that doesn't fit in here or doesn't fit in there, that doesn't mean you shouldn't be singing. And I want to put in a pitch for the New Voices Bay Area, NVBA, which is this amateur course that Ruben Zellman uh, has started at the San Francisco Community Music Center, which I wrote about in the piece. Uh, I spoke to Ruben earlier and made sure that they're still taking people. The information about that is on their website at sfmc.org. Great. Well, it was great to see you outside of the Opera House and in the Thanks. podcast studio. Yeah. Thank you for coming on, and thank you for bringing us the story, too. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Joshua Cosman, for his reporting. And thanks to Libby Coleman for producing this episode. Fifth and Mission is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. If you like this show, we'd love it if you'd subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got a minute to give us a quick review, that helps us build our audience so we can keep growing. You can support Fifth and Mission and the newsroom that creates it with a subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle. There are print and digital editions. Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe.